0: You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Lane Wagner, who is running a serverless setup with Golang to help power an open source password manager. Lane, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Nick.
0: Yeah, today's going to be a really interesting show because... I'm not really an expert with serverless, so I'm really excited to see where this one goes.
1: Yeah, serverless has been, uh, it's been interesting. This is my second second time putting up a serverless API. And uh, I don't know, I, ha- I have mixed feelings about it, but that'll be something we get into, I'm sure.
0: Yeah. But uh, before we get into all the good stuff, do you want to introduce yourself and maybe let people know a little bit about the app that we're going to go over today?
1: Yeah, totally. So my name is Lane Wagner. Um, professionally, I've Been a back-end, primarily a back-end developer for most of my career. Uh, Qvault is an Electron app. As you mentioned, it's a password manager um, with a specific emphasis on uh, cryptocurrency secret management. So just a month or two ago, I believe, we released the ability to uh, generate essentially cold storage, Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash, wallets uh, from within the password manager. But yeah, it's 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 been a lot of fun. Um, it's it's just been me, a couple other guys, doing it as a side project. Um, yeah, sorry. What what else can I can I explain for you?
0: No, that that's good to start us off. So you mentioned it being pretty Bitcoin specific. Is this something that people can use just for regular passwords too, if like not associated to Bitcoin?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, it can store any kind of text based secret, or rather, text encoded secret. The UI UX, um, you know, supports many different types of secrets. For instance, financial information, credit cards, uh, passwords, that sort of thing, and then Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. Uh, well, one of the next steps that I want to work on is integrating a Chrome extension for the password manager. So, for instance, right now um, the focus has been on you know extremely secure, desktop only. You know, the primary, the primary demographic or user of the app would be someone trying to store cryptocurrency or Bitcoin or whatever. But, for instance, I personally also use it to store my passwords. And it's frustrating to have to, like, copy-paste my passwords into Chrome. Um, so what we want to do next, which is actually super interesting, um, at least to me, <laughs> uh, is we want to set up sections of the vault so that they're encrypted with... Um, different subsets of the master key so that, for instance, my Chrome browser through some extension can have access to the a, a section of my vault that stores my passwords, but the Chrome extension would never be able to have the decryption keys to get into the other set of the vault that contains the cryptocurrency. Um, so those are the kind of things we have coming up in our pipeline.
0: Nice. Yeah, that sounds really cool because I am one of those weirdos who like, I will not use the browser extension for that, only because I don't trust it. Mm-hmm. But uh, in your case, it's open source. So it's like, well, you know, if I had any doubts, I can like literally just, you know, look at the source code. I mean, you mentioned um, it's an Electron app. So I, I guess anybody can just compile that, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, we actually recently just had um, kind of a community user get it all set up on Arch Linux because he's an Arch Linux guy. But yeah, it was like super easy for him to just kind of change some configs and then publish to AUR.
0: As for the serverless setup, do you just want to go into, like, what language? Well, we know that we're going to be talking about Golang today, so do you want to go a little bit into why you chose Golang over maybe some other languages?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, like most people, the main reason I chose Go is it's what I do. (laughs) I have a program in Go at work. Um, I mean, I'm passionate about Go other than just being familiar with it um, and would choose it for other reasons. but. The reasons that typically stick out are things like how easy it is to spin up a server. Um, the standard library in Go makes it really easy to spin up a production-ready server, um, whereas in a lot of other languages, you'd need to install third-party libraries um, and things of that sort. Um, also, it's just it's really fast. Memory footprint's very low. Um, so my cost to run the servers is, is lower because of the fact that I'm using a compiled language like Go. Um, those would definitely be the the main reasons for choosing Go. Speed, cost efficiency, and just the fact that I know it. Simplicity.
0: Yeah, definitely knowing it helps a lot, I found.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, I believe if I'm going to do a personal project, for instance, something like this, where, you know, maybe it makes money down the line, maybe it doesn't. Um, it's probably just going to be a time sink for a long time, at the very least. Um, at the least, I should be learning something, right? So choosing a tech stack that includes serverless, for instance, was awesome because I get to learn about serverless while I'm also trying to build something useful.
0: Right. So usually, like, this is a point where, you know, I would ask, like, is your application a monolithic application or broken up into microservices? <laughs> but, you know, today we're dealing with serverless. So, um, like, what made you to go down that route? Was it just because you wanted to learn something new or?
1: I did want to learn something new. I'd thrown up a smaller serverless app, like, a year ago, just for fun. Um, and I liked the experience. So, uh, if it, I mean, I'm, I'm going to assume you have some listeners that probably aren't super familiar with serverless, so maybe I should explain that for just one second?
0: Yeah, because serverless is like, you know, it's like this magic term that gets thrown around, but yeah, it could mean many different things to many different people.
1: Yeah, totally. So one of the first criticisms that people have about the name serverless is that obviously there are servers. It's not actually serverless. Um, but the idea is the concept of long-running server state is abstracted away from the developer or from the, the user. The cloud hosting platform manages all of that. So instead, what we do is we just provide functions. So for instance, in the case of Go, I'll hand a, a, a compiled binary to AWS, and they have their you know serverless setup um, that will just run that binary when it's called. And there's different ways you can trigger that function to be called. For instance, I have, I'm have i using the AWS's uh, API gateway. So API gateway stands in front of all the serverless functions and it passes, you know, HTTP um, requests in and out of the function. Anyways, but basically the idea is, instead of programming one app that handles many different requests on many different endpoints, I, I literally program 20, 30, 40 different binaries, different applications. They're all tiny. They're they're literally one file um, to define each each function that gets called by uh, API Gateway.
0: So one question I have for you with that type of setup is like, let's say you have, you know, 30 or 40 different functions. Are each of these then mapped to like, like a specific subdomain or like a unique URL to some extent?
1: So with the way... And I'm not I'm not super familiar with how like GCP sets it up or whatever, but with AWS I I define well I guess I should even abstract it one more layer. I'm using a framework called serverless, which is something you don't need to do. Um, but basically, well, could, sp-
0: could that be any more confusingly named?
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. So so the serverless framework um, basically it, it's a CLI tool that allows you to manage essentially a serverless API on top of AWS or GCP or Azure or whatever. Um, So it essentially wraps, you know, Lambda in AWS's case. Lambda is the serverless functions. And then API gateway kind of all up into a nice little manageable bundle for you. And now I'm forgetting the original question because I dove back too far.
0: Right. Well, it's kind of like, you know, how how do you tie in one of these functions to like a URL endpoint, is that something that the serverless framework does for you? Or?
1: Yeah, totally. Sorry. so Yeah, I, I jumped too far back. So um, uh, API gateway is where I define the domain. So for instance, with QVault, api.qvault.io. Within API gateway, so within the AWS platform, I define the endpoint that I want to be forwarded to a specific Lambda function. So I define within AWS each endpoint rather than like with a monolithic app, you know, you'd probably define it in code somewhere.
0: Yeah, like a routes file or something.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, I'm, I'm defining it in a config file that gets pushed to AWS. And then AWS now knows how to route um, specific endpoints to specific functions. So that's, I think that answers that question probably.
0: Yeah, no, it does. And then it's like, well, now we're kind of dealing with like two sides of the story, right? Like that's the server side, even though technically it's serverless. Um, but now it's like, you know, how do you invoke that function? Or, you know, how do you go to that endpoint? Like, I assume that's called within the Electron app some in some way, right?
1: Uh, maybe I'm misunderstanding the question. Are you talking about on the server side, how the function is invoked? Or are you talking about how in Electron do we make those calls?
0: Yeah, so the second one, I think, because it's like, the reason these functions exist is for you to be able to call them From the Electron app? Is that how Uh, that works?
1: Yeah, totally. So, I mean, the idea of using serverless is, I mean, it's unnecessary. And the Electron app doesn't have any knowledge, right, of the fact that we're using serverless. Um, To the Electron app, it's just a normal REST API, um, like any other. So if, for instance, I decided one day that I didn't want to run on serverless anymore, I could take all my functions, I could wrap them into... Like you said, what would essentially be a routes file or a bunch of handlers in a more monolithic Go API and run that somewhere else and just change the domain or, or, you know, what have you. But yeah, the the Electron app, it's just making HTTP uh, requests.
0: so. So I guess one question for you then, just to go off on a little side topic. So if this is a standalone password manager that runs I guess, on every platform Electron supported on, like Mac, Windows, most uh, Linux distros, like what even needs to be executed on the server side or the serverless side? Yeah,
1: totally. So there was actually some debate, and there's still some debate amongst myself and some of the others I'm working with on this project about what the function of the cloud service should be. Are are you familiar with kind of the Bitcoin or, or crypto communities at all?
0: I bought literally one Bitcoin, like, 2 years ago or something when it was like just a few thousand dollars i think not even like maybe it was like 1100 yeah and uh i made like 500 bucks on that and i was like yes and then <laughs> like 6 months later it jumped to like 20,000 and i was like damn it <laughs> yeah. so yeah i don't know too much beyond like very casual uh bitcoin knowledge
1: no yeah totally but i guess the, the only point i wanted to make that's relevant here is um you know if you're into that sort of stuff at all and you're into storing your own bitcoins it's I mean, privacy and security are, are kind of the name of the game, right? So with QVault, where we want people to be able to store and generate private keys within their vault, um, there's a couple of requirements we had. First of all, I, w- I... And I mean, really, I'm building this app for me. And then anyone that happens to have the same kind of requirements, it's like, great, you can use the app too. <laughs> but uh, I want an app where... When I go to save my passwords, it's encrypted client-side, right? So it's encrypted in the Electron app. Unencrypted secrets are never never leave my machine. But basically, it's encrypted within the app, and then it saves that file in multiple locations. Because not only am I worried about security, I'm worried about loss. So one of the core features of QVault is that when you save a vault, it saves it in an encrypted vault file on your machine. Kind of just like, you know, any... Just like any other file we we named it with a vault extension but it's essentially just an encrypted file that qvault can understand and then that's that like go ahead yeah
0: oh sorry is that like comparable to like like a like a private key for ssh uh
1: following this analogy the private key would be like uh what your master password is which would be used to encrypt and decrypt the vault the vault file on your computer is going to be that encrypted file. So if, the, if someone had your vault file, but didn't know your password, they wouldn't be able to decrypt the, the vault file. Got it. Um, but yeah, so the vault file gets saved on the computer and then it also gets saved somewhere else. So our first step at this was the QVault cloud platform. So essentially the main function of the serverless platform is to be a, a you know, CRUD API that can store these encrypted files. So, For anyone that uses QVault, assuming they have set up their optional cloud account, because you can also use QVault completely offline if you want, your encrypted file is stored on your computer and in the QVault cloud. And it's important to note or mention that you're only storing storing the encrypted file on the QVault cloud. QVault's like, I I can't go in and decrypt any of those files because I don't have any of the master passwords.
0: So you mentioned saving that up there in the cloud is that also on AWS then
1: yep so the serverless API acts as a front for um, a Postgres RDS instance where you know usernames access keys vaults and everything are stored
0: so then just to like follow the flow of this like someone opens the electron app they do some action that is going to invoke some API endpoint which is now tied into a serverless function. And then that serverless function potentially might just write out to like a Postgres database.
1: Yep. Assuming that the user of the Electron app has opted for cloud service. They don't want to work offline.
0: Right. And for that, uh, for Postgres there, are you using RDS or something else?
1: Yeah, RDS. I've I've actually, uh, I've never had a reason not to use RDS. I know I've, I've had some colleagues that have uh, made complaints about having managed uh, database services, but I've really liked it.
0: Yeah, I'm torn kind of on that. It's like, most of my projects are on DigitalOcean, mm-hmm. and uh, they only very recently got, like, a managed Postgres thing. So I'm definitely going to be checking that out. But I feel like, yeah, if you're going to go on, like, any of the big cloud providers, like AWS, GCP, whatever, it's like, you might as well take advantage of the services they have.
1: Yeah, I mean, usually you don't pay any more for the managed service. It's all just kind of compute and disk and, you know, all the metrics. So the the managed bit is just a freebie.
0: So kind of just, like, jumping around a little bit now... Like, what is the development experience like? Like, when you're actively hacking on the serverless functions, are you actually, like, communicating with AWS in, like, a dev environment or something else?
1: Um, I'm sure there's different ways to do it. Personally, what I've done uh, on both my projects is I run locally... um, I have a make file that will build uh, large sections of the functions all at once because a lot of the functions, for instance, are very logically... Um, tied together, very tightly coupled to each other. For instance, I have maybe four endpoints that are that deal with like passwords or whatever. So I have lots of little libraries, little little go packages where the actual endpoint programs will all pull from the same little library of code. But yeah, I basically just have all these make files. Um, I build and compile all the code locally. and then using the serverless CLI, I can upload those binaries directly to lambda and cloudfront. So I basically have this, you know, serverless config file. I have to log in with an IAM user that kind of thing, but the the serverless framework is what I would is probably the crutch that you're asking about.
0: I just mean like from the dev point of view, so your dev environment essentially is on the cloud, right? I oh, guess. Oh,
1: you're talking about like a, a dev stage production
0: Not even like a staging server, but let's just say that, you know, you want to work on the application and you're adding some new functionality or something like that. And you want the Electron app to call some serverless function that you haven't written yet. Mm -hmm. So like typically in like a Rails or a Flask app or some non-serverless setup, it's like you would just run the web server locally on your box, like maybe within Docker or something like that. And then now it's like you just have this self-contained application that you can hack on without even involving like the external internet.
1: Oh, I follow. I follow. Um... That's a really good point um, because, yeah, that's how I do it at work most of the time. Funny enough, uh, so specifically with QVault, the REST API is so drop-dead simple. Like, all the complex, interesting things are in the Electron app that anytime I've needed to add functionality, I just push a new function to production, which would be more dangerous if it was a monolithic application, because you're, you're modifying your entire program. But that, that's one of the selling points of serverless, is I can literally deploy one function, and it won't affect any of the other functions in any way. Right? Like, even if I update a shared library or something, the other function won't update its shared library unless I give a new compiled binary to, to AWS. So, yeah, I think to answer your question, when I need to test a new endpoint, I can just deploy a new endpoint. It's not even like stage versus production or whatever. I can deploy to a test endpoint. And just test that one that one endpoint in isolation.
0: Yeah, that's definitely handy because yeah, in any monolithic application, it's like well, you're deploying the app, and yeah, now there's changes.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it is very handy to treat, and this is to me, this is like the biggest, well, the two biggest selling points um, of serverless, and and the main reasons I would still choose to use it, depending on the app, are that. Number one, isolation of functions. And then number two is how well it scales automatically.
0: Yeah, we haven't even gotten into that point. But like, I mean, I guess these functions are set up where if you're not even dealing with the underlying like hardware specs of where it gets run, like it'll just scale basically like to infinity and beyond, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it scales to the size of your wallet. <laughs> right, oh, yeah. because uh, you get charged for usage. So it's it's actually really, and one of the reasons, again... One of the, poor man reason, right? Like, it costs me nothing if no one's using it. Um, I'm not even paying the, you know, 20 bucks a month to keep, you know, an EC2 instance up or whatever. Um, it literally costs nothing when no one's using it. So, you know, we have, we have, last I checked, a little over 3,000 downloads of the app. Um, so requests to the API are actually super infrequent. If I had a server running, it would mostly just be sitting there idle. But because it's serverless, you know, it's just they're literally doing nothing. And when someone does ask for um, an endpoint to do some work, AWS quickly spins up a container, uh, handles the request, and spins it back down.
0: Yeah, that was my uh, a question I was just going to ask. Like, what is the turnaround time for that container, I guess, to come up, you know, do the work, and then come down? Like, are you waiting, like, hundreds of milliseconds for AWS to be able to provide that before it's live?
1: That's a great question. Um, AWS has gotten a lot better about it. A couple of years ago, they were. If you've ever, have you heard about? Uh, they call it uh, function warming. Have you have you heard of function warming in regards to serverless at all?
0: Nope. I mean, I guess like if I were to guess at it, it's like maybe they just keep it running, sort of in the background, but it's like not something you even deal with, maybe. Yeah,
1: and, and I mean, it's it's a closed source cloud provider, so they don't give you like too many details. But the basic idea is, you know, I have this serverless function, and if it's called. Um, let's say my app usage, I have enough users that that function on average is being called once a minute. Then the response time at that endpoint will be on the order of you know, milliseconds or whatever. It's going to be like a, just like a normal server running. It's going to be lightning fast. If I let that function go cold because I haven't had anyone request to that endpoint in, say, an hour, then AWS is going to spin up whatever hardware they actually have running for the first time. And it's going to take, it it can actually take a couple seconds, which is obviously not great user experience. Um, But that's the price you pay essentially um, is you'll, you'll get a cold start every once in a while. If you have super infrequent use and the more frequent your app is used, the fewer cold starts you'll have. And you can you can deploy tricks, and so that's actually what I ended up doing. Is you can do a thing where, and this is actually built into AWS, where you tell AWS, "Hey, call my function once every five minutes," which what that basically does is keep it hot all the time or keep it warm.
0: No, I was gonna say like that reminds me a lot about like Heroku's free tier. It's like if it goes inactive for like I don't know the numbers because I don't really use it, but like after 30 minutes, then it takes like five seconds for the request to be fulfilled because you know it's been cold the whole time. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I mean, it it is faster because it's Go, right? And it is a compiled binary, so there's not a runtime to spin up and all that stuff. So, it I, I actually have never really seen any bad performance um, with with the uh, QVaults API. I, I've mostly just heard things. And like I said, I did implement some of that those warming strategies. But also, those have mixed reviews. Like, from what I've read online, and because we don't really have access to see what AWS is doing under the hood, eh, <laughs> you know, you can just try things yeah. and see if they work, basically.
0: So that's a little bit about the backend side of things. What's up with the Electron app? Like, I've never developed one before. Are you just writing JavaScript using, like, React or Vue or something like that?
1: Yeah, totally. We're using Vue. Um, the way I think about Electron, this is my first Electron app. I've learned a lot. We've been doing it. I mean, we've been working on the project for about eight months now. The way I look at it is is the way I kind of look at JavaScript, which is I'm a little jaded, but I'm like, this is like what becomes of us after making a bunch of horrible decisions. So <laughs> Electron is, I'm sure you're familiar, but it's it's a browser bundled with a very specific JavaScript app, right? So when a, new u- when a user installs QVault, really what they're doing is installing another version of Chrome, a very specific version of Chrome, with an entire node runtime with a front-end JavaScript bundle, right? So it's like the bloatiest way to make an app.
0: I've used uh, Visual Studio Code for a bit, and like that's a really good example of like, like maybe like a best case scenario for an Electron app. Like they've done a good job optimizing that one. But yeah, I've tried some other ones. Like there was some terminal that was based on Electron and then it's like, well, why does it take me four seconds and like 800 megs to just open up a terminal?
1: (laughs) Yeah, totally. And and I mean, I'm not super hating. I'm a little hating because I'm I'm just a little jaded about how we got here. But now that we're here, like Electron is an extremely convenient way to build applications. And it's very fast and it's... I mean, it's it's easy to work with. It's got great native APIs. So I'm, I'm not totally hating.
0: Yeah, no, if it can allow you to do what you need to do in a way that's like not draining your soul, then it's successful. It can only get faster from here, I guess.
1: Like, for instance, when we had, I mentioned earlier, we had a community member published to AUR. One of the, I guess, I'm not an Arch person. Um, I'm more of an Ubuntu guy, but... One of the ideals of like an Arch user is you don't want to reinstall things you already have. So for that AUR package, he actually built in a configuration where it will use the version of Chromium or Electron or Node or whatever that's already installed on the machine and not reinstall the entire thing and try to just use the specific JavaScript that's required, if possible. Um, hmm.
0: That's a good idea, yeah, to save some resources.
1: Yeah, which is super interesting. I mean, it does kind of go against the purpose like one of the main purposes of electron which is hey i'm gonna bundle this whole thing all together so that i'm always in the same you know i don't have to worry about uh, browser versions versus node versions um takes a lot of that headache out of it but
0: so you mentioned a couple different aws services uh you know lambda api gateway rds um CloudFront. so do you have any other aws services that you're using
1: I think, yes, the main ones you mentioned, RDS Lambda, API Gateway, um, CloudFront, Route 53. Our DNS is also done through AWS, which actually is saves a lot of headaches. Um, that, that would be one recommendation I'd give to anyone that's going to do a serverless project on AWS. You'll save yourself a lot of time if Route 53 is your registrar or at least hosts your your DNS. A lot of things are more plug Please tell play. me more. <laughs> uh, so when you go to set up um, CloudFront, which is their CDN, with the Lambda API Gateway type stack, um, it gets really hairy. And I don't want to say it's impossible if if Route Fifty Three is not your registrar, because I can't remember. But it's at least very hard. AWS has its fake alias type records, which aren't really A records, and they're not really C name records either. Um, but those alias records make it way easier to play around in kind of the, the AWS space online. Like the, the AWS right. DNS space. So so that's just I mean, start if you're starting a project and you can get your hosted zone into Route 53, it's going to make serverless development a lot easier.
0: So I have a, a really stupid question to ask now. <laughs> so you mentioned CloudFront and you know, we know that's a CDN, but if you're just executing like an API endpoint, how does that become something that goes behind a CDN? Because typically you'd use a CDN for like static files, you know, like an image or a CSS bundles.
1: That's a fantastic question. And now I'm wondering if I'm a liar. I want to say there's a CloudFront distribution. It's, it may be one of those things that I, I could get back to you on because um, I remember setting up a CloudFront distribution, but I also could be Confusing myself with when I went and deployed our front ends for a different app, um, which was you know like a like a bundled React app, um, which obviously would be served through CloudFront. Um, so I'm actually having a hard time remembering if CloudFront is is explicitly part of this stack. I want to say it is, but I might be a liar. Serverless uh, manages all the things underneath. So, oh, so this is
0: not really some, like you're not in there tinkering with most of these things. It's just they're just being created on your behalf.
1: Yeah, not often. Um, oh, you know what? I bet I'm confused, getting confused about cloud formation. Um, ah. Are you familiar with cloud formation templates at all?
0: Yeah. So, do you want to just give like a TLDR for listeners on what that is?
1: Yeah, and I'm not an ops guy, so that's probably why I sound really dumb. But the idea behind cloud formations it's it's simpler. It's similar to like Terraform or whatever. Basically. Uh, you def- you can define files that uh, allow you to spin up resources in AWS. So it's kind of the whole infrastructure as code idea. I'll have a bunch of files in a Git repository, and then using the AWS CLI, I can run a commands to take those configuration files and tell AWS what infrastructure I want created. Um, and that just it makes it so that you know, if for whatever reason I lose access to my AWS account or if someone goes in and deletes resources, I have all that in code somewhere. I can go get it recreated or restored or what have you. That's cloud formation. Serverless is the, is the framework that we talked about earlier. What it does is it takes serverless configs and creates cloud formation configs in the case of AWS. In the case of GCP, it would do something else. But the idea is I can take my serverless configuration and it will change get changed into cloud formation configurations which will then go deploy the necessary lambda functions uh api gateway endpoints etc so that's also part of the reason why sometimes i don't know what i'm talking about
0: <laughs> yeah no that makes sense and using something like cloud formation makes a whole lot of sense if you're dealing with aws where you might be touching like you know 15 different services you don't want to have to go into like The Amazon dashboard and do those things manually.
1: Yeah, and I mean, doing things manually is you know sometimes a fine option if you have like one database and two servers and you know just a couple things. But with something like serverless or or uh, well, yeah, serverless. You know, if I have forty endpoints, the only way to do that manually is to go into the AWS dashboard and literally upload forty binaries, forty executable functions to the console, which is unbelievably tedious.
0: Yeah. Now speaking about uh binaries you just reminded me now. So are all of these like serverless endpoints are they being served over HTTPS? Yep.
1: They're all being served over HTTPS. It was re- like I said it was really easy. It was very magical um to just take a route 53 record, get a get an AWS free SSL certificate and tie it all into API gateway.
0: Yeah, what is it? Um ACM is that the uh, AWS service for that?
1: Yes, something certificate manager sounds right.
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe even Amazon Certificate Manager. I'm not sure. That would,
1: that would make a good deal of sense.
0: But it's weird because it's like it's AWS, like it's Amazon's, you know, Amazon Certificate Manager. Like we know it's on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> so we have talked about a whole bunch of different uh, AWS AWS services, but um, are you do you deal with any like external like SaaS tools that your that your whole setup depends on? Like transactional email services and error reporting and stuff like that.
1: We actually do not. Uh, I thought about that earlier when I got your email. There is there is nothing third party, other than some libraries, like some code libraries, open source, you know, tools or whatever. Um, but SaaS offerings, we don't use anything.
0: Okay. So then like for like logging and error reporting and metrics are you just using all AWS stuff?
1: Yeah, it's all just the internal AWS stuff for now. I mean, our volume is so low right now of users like I said, you know, we've got a little over 3000 downloads. It's it's kind of one of those things that you grow into. Uh, for now the cloud, what's it called? Cloud something, there's a name for it, but the automatic AWS logging service. Where it kind of just takes what happens in your Lambda function and throws it into an S3 bucket for you.
0: Okay, yeah, I was going to ask, like, you know, how do you even get to the logs of one of these functions? So that's the thing that does that.
1: Yeah, and I can't remember the name of the service. Um, and I know there's like options to be able to forward it into the the logs into S3 buckets and things like that. But I couldn't even tell you off the off the top of my head. Um, the nice thing about serverless, I mean, this is going to sound a little naive, but there's no long running state, right? So every function invocation uh, is completely new. So assuming you didn't change your code, the server doesn't really go down. At work, the company, the company I work for, uh, we have we have servers with long running state, and occasionally something will go wrong that has more to do with you know the data that's running through the system. Uh, nobody necessarily deployed a code change. With API functions with no long running state, if something goes wrong, I mean, it's probably because you deployed a bug. Or I guess there's state in that there's a database, so maybe something's weird in the database. But there's just not a whole lot to break, you know what I mean?
0: So how does that work in terms of the database? Like, like I'm not sure, like, do you deal with, like, running database migrations then, like through some other private uh, serverless function or something like that?
1: So we haven't had to do any database migrations yet. Uh, it's a fairly new app, so the, the the first schema we concocted, you know, we've had to add a column here or there, but we haven't had to do any like serious migrations. So nothing's changed. If we were to do something like that, it would probably be best to keep. So there, there's one repository that holds all the serverless functions code. So it's like a monolithic repository, but. You know, that it, that repository contains the code to generate like 40 different executables. The smart thing to do probably, and I don't know if this actually is, there's not that many examples of people running serverless in production, but I'm assuming the smart thing to do would be to have some sort of migrations function or, well, I guess it would, it would be, you know, its own executable within that repository that handles the spin up and migrations of the database completely separately.
0: Yeah, that's a tricky one, right? Because it's like, I don't know enough about serverless to really understand everything, but I've read that there's like a time limit on how long a function can execute for before it gets basically like kill nined. Is that how that works? Like 10 or 15 minutes or whatever?
1: Yeah, it's, I think they just increased it. When I first started the projects, well, when I did my first serverless project like two years ago, I believe it was five minutes. And I think now it's 15.
0: Because it's interesting in relation to migrations, because it's like, Sometimes migrations are kind of easy. It's, you know, it's like you're adding a column to like a small table and that could be like, you know, effectively instant, right? Like milliseconds. But what happens if you have like, you know, 100 gigs of data and you need to like do a really complex migration that might take like, you know, really like two hours to run? Like how would that even, how would that even work? Maybe you'd have to like not do serverless for that.
1: That's a great question. I mean, you also don't necessarily need your migration tool to be part of your API that's convenient for instance in like a rails app or whatever you know your your app can handle all your migrations but that's not a thing that's necessary you could have a server that handles migrations like a completely separate stateful server you could just keep those migrations in code but run them locally connected to the database i mean i don't know how great of an idea that is but those are things you could do right
0: you're going with the serverless setup, but like push comes to shove. If you had to put up a server just for that, it's like not the end of the world, but there are options basically.
1: Yeah. And I mean, if you think about like the idea of CI/CD, kind of pipelines, um, that's essentially what this would be, right? Like you'd want some migration to run when the migrations file got changed, but other than that, never. So something similar to that would probably be a good solution.
0: So speaking of CI here, do you kind of just want to like, Talk us through how code exactly goes from your dev box into the point where, I guess it's running in production. Even though it sounds like there's not like a whole ceremony ceremony around it, but it would be interesting to hear that how how that works. Like, are you even using like a CI service?
1: I'm a huge fan of CI/CD. I'm a huge fan of the master branch or the production branch or whatever of the Git repository essentially, always being up to date with whatever's in production via a CI/CD pipeline. Um, that said. Uh, we do use a CICD pipeline for the Electron app. We use Travis. So when we push code to master, it takes the version number, builds a new release, and pushes the new code to GitHub releases. And then the Electron app has an auto-update function. Well, auto is wrong. It has an update function. It can detect that there's updates on GitHub and update itself. The code for the server... Oh, Sorry.
0: No, it's okay. I was going to say, like, that's pretty cool. Like, just like VS Code, where it's like you start it up, and it's like, hey, by the way, there's an update.
1: Yeah, exactly. To me, that was, like, a necessary feature. I didn't want people to have to go back to GitHub or go back to the website and re-download every time. Also, because I like, I'm a big fan of small updates. You know, I'll sit down for an hour, code something, and I just want to test it and push it up. But, uh, so that's how the Electron app works. And I'm much more proud of that, that deployment pipeline. Uh, the serverless stuff, like I said, it's pretty static. It pr- doesn't change a whole lot. Um, it actually hasn't changed in quite a while um, because it's essentially just a CRUD server that handles authentication and storage. But all I do is uh, run the the serverless function locally. Uh, so I just do my make and then push the binaries up to, to AWS. Pretty, I mean, it's manual in that sense. At least there's a, there's a there's a command on the command line to run, but, but yeah, there's no, uh, CI involved.
0: So is there some like turnaround time between you pushing that binary and AWS serving that, or is it basically instant as soon as it transfers? Like the next execution of it will be the new one. Yeah.
1: It's basically instant.
0: Let's just say we're dealing with one serverless function and it's mid executing. Let's just say it takes like eight seconds to run and it's like four seconds into it. And you just deployed a new version of that function. Will the old one execute to completion, or like just somehow like get spazzed out?
1: That's a great question. And I've, I mean, we're not at the level of capacity to ever even see that happen. But uh, my assumption—I mean, I'm making some huge assumptions about AWS. I would imagine that the function would finish. The old function would finish, yeah. and the next invocation will start with the new binary. That seems to make sense. But yeah, I've actually never. Tried that.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's also a hard thing to try too. Like, if you're running like a super optimized Go binary that finishes in like 12 milliseconds, you know, it's like you may not even get to that. Like, how do you measure? You know, shutting it down within eight milliseconds. It's it's a very hard thing to do. I mean,
1: yeah, I'd need to write a script that like basically DDOSes the endpoint <laughs> and then <laughs> yeah. and then uh run a deploy and see if any of those requests failed. <laughs>
0: So how do you deal, and I don't know if you're dealing with this right now, but like, how would you deal with managing secrets like, you know, API keys, email credentials, stuff like that?
1: Yeah, uh, so serverless actually handles that pretty well just through environment variables. Um, So you give the serverless config whatever, you know, secret environment variables you have um, so they don't need to be committed to your Git repository, but that's basically it. You know, you, you deploy... You deploy those using the serverless framework, I guess, is the way to phrase it.
0: Right, so it's like a handled problem, not too complicated.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's not bad at all. Um, the only other uh, production system that I'm super familiar with in, in regards to environment variables and things like that uh, is Deus. Um, and it's it's very different than Deus in that you essentially deploy the environment variables on deploy, as opposed to just being able to toggle them, like through a dashboard or whatever. But... Uh, right, but yeah, it's 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 a good experience.
0: So if you went and had, let's say, I I know you're you're not using Stripe or anything like that, but this is like something that I guess may potentially can come up. So like, let's say that you have a function that runs and it does like something that involves an API key, like a Stripe API key. And your key right now, let's just call it like uh, ABC123. And like, for whatever reason, you need to reroll your key. Like someone has it that you don't want to have it. So now your key is like X, Y, Z, uh, you know, one, two, three or whatever. How would you get that new environment variable to be up into that new function? Do you just have to like treat that as a new function that you deploy now? Or can you just like swap the environment variable and like update config configure something? Like it's a little bit shady for me because I've never done that.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So a good example would be our JWT secret. So, you know, we have a, a secret that we use to sign and then verify um, the JWTs, that's the authentication scheme for the backend. Uh, and that has changed a couple times, you know, not because it's like, we suspected it was compromised or anything. I was just like, Oh, I think I'll change this. <laughs> um, because it does, you know, for security reasons, rotate things anyways. Uh, no, it was, it was, it's like I said, um, basically I just went in on my computer, on my local machine, um, changed where I have that environment variable stored. Ch- changed the variable locally, which was just in like a .env or some equivalent uh, file that is not committed to Git. Um, and then when I run the SLS, the serverless deploy command, it grabs the environment variables out of that file and pushes them up to AWS. So they're stored in the repo in a not tracked file, and then and then pushed at deploy time.
0: Right. Yeah, that's almost similar to how I do it with a totally different deployment setup, like using Ansible. So typically like what I'll do is I'll have like a .env.example file that goes into the repo and that will just not have anything sensitive, but it's more of just like, almost like documentation. Like you as a developer are meant to like copy that file to the real .env file. Yeah. And then uh, yeah, Ansible at uh, deploy time will just move that file over. So it's it never ends up in uh, version control, but it gets, you know, it makes its way onto the server.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's a very similar process for sure.
0: How do you deal with like disasters and like weird events and like malicious users and stuff like that? Like, it almost sounds like AWS kind of like has all of that under control, but have you done anything specific?
1: That, that is a great question. Um, it's more of a hypothetical, though, because I haven't really... I mean, we've built in a lot of security, obviously, but it hasn't really been tested yet. <laughs> the app is still small enough that it hasn't gotten enough attention to be really attacked. I'd say the number one thing I would do would be to implement more logging. So, and, and specifically more metrics, right? So I can see, you know, if someone's spamming my endpoints, I, I want to know who, I want to know why, I want to know what they're trying to do. For instance, one example, I, this is kind of a, maybe I'm sidestepping a question, but it's, it's uh, relevant, I think. Um, one of the interesting things that Qvault does is with most websites, you know, you put in a username and a password and that password is sent um, I mean, it's it's encrypted via HTTPS, but the end application gets it sec- effen- effectively in raw text. And then, you know, the server will hash and solve the password and store it in a database. But the problem is the server had access to the password, right? Um, we didn't want that with QVault because the whole idea of using the QVault cloud is that you don't have to trust the server. You know, I'm giving the server my encrypted file I don't want to have to trust that they won't use my password to decrypt it. I don't want them to be able to. So one thing we do is we actually use a key derivation function in the Electron app to hash the password before sending it to the server. So the username hmm. password authentication scheme on the server is using fairly long keys as, as passwords, right? So like if someone was to try to brute force their way into our server good luck. They're like 256 bit <laughs> keys, essentially. Right. Um, but I mean, to answer your question, it, it's things like that. We try to preempt things as much as possible, but we haven't really been pen tested enough.
0: Right. Yeah. It's one of those things where, you know, it's like you'll deal with the problem when it comes, but it sounds like you have avenues to deal with it without that being like a huge, like, it's not going to like, you know, take down the whole app just to deal with it.
1: Yeah, exactly. It, and it comes, you know, it comes with scale and money, right? Like, y- you can only code as many edge cases as you have time.
0: So, speaking about money, if you're okay with answering this, like, just how much does this whole setup cost you on AWS?
1: Um, it fluctuates between twenty and thirty bucks a month. So, very little. <laughs> uh, right. Cost of the domain? We already owned that, actually. The cost of hosting the, d- the domain is like a dollar a month. Um, the cost of the serverless functions themselves are usually below a dollar. The only real cost is the RDS instance, the Postgres database that's always running.
0: Yeah, it always comes down to the data.
1: Yeah, exactly. Which fluctuates between, you know, 10, 20 bucks a month. I actually can't remember. I think it's still on a very small instance size. Um, I mean, the nice thing about, and this is, Again, advice to anyone new to AWS: like always start with the smallest instance because they make it real easy to make it bigger, <laughs> but they make it hard to go smaller. So we start with a yeah, and we can always scale it up.
0: So you have that running on like a like a T2 Micro or something like that for the database?
1: I think so. I think we might. It's either on the smallest or the second to smallest database. Um,
0: yeah, I think it's, like, nano and then micro, and then I forget because there's, like, 8,000 other ones.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the database schema is, like, three tables. You know, it's, like, users, vaults. Actually, it might be two tables. I think it might just be users and vaults. It's, like, very, very drop-dead simple. And we store the vaults uh, just as JSONB. Like, we store the entire vault in the columns in the database. Like, that should be fine for a while um, if we ever have to scale, we may even change databases. It should be like super simple. So
0: I think that's actually pretty cool. It's like you have that very straightforward not super complicated database, but you're able to provide a really unique application.
1: Yeah, totally. I, I'm a big fan. I mean, I'm a back end engineer. And so maybe I'm a bit, <laughs> maybe I push things to the front end too often when I shouldn't. But I'm a big fan of, you know, very simplistic, you know, crud op crud operations on the back end and having the the front ends be a little little smarter
0: yeah i was gonna say like the complexity of the app needs to live somewhere so i guess the electron app i mean or how many like lines of code are we dealing with if, if you happen to know that
1: yeah totally the electron app the total lines of code in the repository is fifty three thousand, which is super misleading i think because
0: uh, yeah because i used to think fifty three thousand, it's like that's a lot <laughs> yeah
1: and that's that's including node modules <laughs> so oh
0: so it's, it's nothing 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 at all <laughs> right
1: right exactly i mean node modules contains the universe um so if i had to like for instance if i had to estimate the amount of files in the app um i want to say it's somewhere around 50 no maybe less maybe like 40 40 files that we've actually written
0: and like your code out of that fifty. 50- three thousand or whatever like a couple thousand or something like that or yeah
1: probably probably around three and five thousand maybe
0: okay so it's still like a moderately sized app
1: yeah for sure i mean and like like you said the complexity does live on the front end and that's not just because i'm a lazy back-end guy and want to push it on the front end that's part of it the other part is uh it needs to because that's where the security lies so, you know, we want the security of the app to all live on your machine and never leave it. So, all the cryptography we do um, you know, has to live uh on the front end. All the all the Bitcoin uh logic to create wallets and stuff, all that is on the front end.
0: So, do you have any advice for others who might be either running a serverless stack now or maybe thinking about it in the future? Like like what's your best tips and lessons learned?
1: Yeah, totally. My first tip would be to am- to to ask yourself why, right? Why do you want a serverless app? Um, after doing two of them, and you know, at, at work we do microservices on Kubernetes, so I'm actually I'm, I'm familiar with kind of I'm familiar with the the microservices route where you have lots of different APIs communicating the serverless and the the kind of monolithic Rails or Django type of app. If you're thinking about moving to a serverless API, I wouldn't recommend it most of the time and the reason is there's kind of two big reasons the first is you're essentially coupling functionality of the app or logic of the app to the infrastructure to the cloud provider right more than you would with other things you know if if i'm running an api for instance on something like kubernetes even if it's like a microservices thing i have my api i have my app i can execute it i can run it i can run it locally it's a standalone program with serverless i don't have that i have one function that i give to aws and i'm now kind of at the mercy of aws to do things with it so there's a lot of lot of coupling there that i'm not super comfortable with that that would kind of be reason number one uh the other reason is it's just a lot of complexity just a lot of kind of devops work if you're just a
0: developer which is funny because you think like the purpose of the serverless setup is to avoid like the operation stuff <laughs> to some extent. But it's like you're shifting responsibilities now. Instead of dealing with like setting up like a, a user to SSH into the server, you know, you're you're monkeying around with some higher level service from the provider.
1: Yeah, totally. You're trading one one problem for another. A- and that being said, I mean it is easier to set up serverless than like an entire Kubernetes cluster. Um yeah. but it's it's much harder than setting up like just a monolithic app. When I say harder, I mean just, you know, time put into it um that being said there are a couple reasons to consider it and it's i'm not always saying it's a bad idea uh the the main reasons to do it are things like you have very intermittent use of your api and so you like the fact that you pay like essentially nothing like i literally pay like less than a dollar to run the compute side um, of the app which is
0: it seems awesome like for your use case of having like I don't want to see like a native app, but like an Electron app, like not a web application, essentially like running on the internet. This seems like a pretty good fit for that.
1: Yeah, totally. And, and like, I don't even know if I'd do it differently, to be honest. Like, I know I'm kind of recommending that, but uh, yeah, I mean, the cost savings are, are pretty great, especially if it's like a personal project. Just don't want to take on this like monthly cost. And then the other reason to, to pursue serverless is scale, right? Like, you don't want to have to worry about scaling up. And I know that's also kind of an argument for something like Kubernetes. Um, and, and it totally is. So you just kind of have to pick your favorite, right? Like, with serverless, you literally don't have to do anything to get it to scale up. Like, I I could leave my app exactly as it is, other than managing the database. And, and it, the compute side would scale, you know, in quotes, infinitely. Uh, whereas with Kubernetes, I would still need to like provision more nodes to my cluster, right? <laughs> like right. there's a little bit of work there. So,
0: would you even would you recommend a serverless setup for someone who is building more of a traditional web application instead of like an Electron app? Like let's say if you were to develop like I don't know like any site like like a GitHub clone or something like that, you know, like a typical like like a Rails application.
1: Yeah, totally. So, I mean, my recommendation, just as a rule of thumb always, is to decouple the front end from the back end. So to always have kind of a, an API of some sort and then have a, a front end that, you know, isn't necessarily need to be served by that API. Um, that That's kind of the first recommendation. But yeah, I think serverless is great. Like I said, I think it uh, it comes with the benefits of scale and the benefits of low cost. If those are the things that you care about, then I think it's a great option. Um, but if you're just trying to get something put up, something simple, and you're trying to do it quickly, uh, no, I think you're much better off running just on an EC2 box or in some other, basically any other configuration.
0: Yeah. I think there's one important last thing I want to bring up. And like, I don't know enough about the details to even like intelligently talk about it, but I remember this one blog post from like where... This one developer was like, you know, we used serverless for a whole like a web application and uh, it went well until they actually got successful. And then it ended up costing like way more than um, like a more traditional setup, like a server side app.
1: Um, that's yeah, I've heard the exact same thing. I don't know because we haven't got to that scale yet. Um, but the thing that I've heard really costs is uh, the API gateway, actually. Um, compute and everything is still super low, especially if you're running Go because Go executes very quickly um, with a low memory footprint. But the API gateway, the IO costs, like especially if you're transferring like large amounts of data, right? Um, I've, I've heard mm-hmm. that's what gets you um, because with some other setup, for instance, if you're running on Kubernetes or Docker Swarm or whatever, you have your own Nginx um, setup, IO through API gateway. That, that's what I've heard. I like I said, haven't really experienced it yet.
0: Yeah. Maybe I'll just like drop a link in the show notes so people can check it out if they'd like. That's a great idea, yeah. Cool. So Lane, thanks so much for coming on the Running In Production Podcast. It was great talking with you.
1: Thanks for having me. I had a good time.
0: Cool. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, like a GitHub profile, a YouTube channel, a Twitter account, like whatever you'd like?
1: Yeah, totally. Uh so my my Twitter handle is Wags Lane um W A G s-l-a-n-e and then Qvault is hosted on qvault.io from there you can get to our github Um, you'll see me on there as a contributor and yeah if you ever want to reach out, have questions for me, uh, feel free to contact me
0: and on that note to everyone listening thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one you've been listening to the running in production podcast you can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.